You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. If, uh, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloy and I serve as uh, one of the pastors of Liberty Church. Uh, we're glad to have you uh, joining with us from your home, uh, from wherever you, you find yourself this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today, Mark chapter 15, and um, you can just make your way there. I'll, I'll read that text for us just in a little bit. Um, today, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, begins Holy Week, which is uh, Jesus' last week leading up to his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, this year, uh, it's going to be, and Abby mentioned this a little while ago, it's going to be really odd not to be able to gather uh, and worship and celebrate uh, these central and eternity-shaping events with one another. Uh, and I'm sad about that. Uh, I'm, I'm missing this morning seeing the, the kids of our church parading through this room as they normally do on Palm Sunday, waving palm branches. Um, at the same time, it's a great encouragement to me uh, I don't know that there's a better encouragement that a pastor can feel, uh, that I would, I, I, I'm sad to not gather and worship with you, with this church. I would choose to be part of this church and friends with you and in community with you, even if I wasn't paid to do so. Uh, and I've felt that this week. I've felt that over these weeks we've been unable to gather as I've longed to gather again. Um, there's been a, um, a kind of encouragement that's come in the absence of that. I'm grateful for our church family. I'm grateful for you. I am longing for the day that we're together. And though we are lamenting worse things for sure right now than the ability to gather, uh, it is uh, important to lament that and to long for the day that we can do so again. As we this morning prepare to read about Jesus' crucifixion, um, something I would invite you to consider. Uh, In this moment, in in the midst of our world's efforts to slow the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic, so much has been stripped away. Businesses are closed. Schools in Pennsylvania are now closed indefinitely. Uh, Social life and home life is very different. So purely by circumstance, uh, we have been in these days forced to recognize our limitedness. Uh, We've been forced to consider uh, what is really important, what is really essential in life. And so there is, though we're unable to gather this Holy Week, there's a unique opportunity for renewal and for worship. Uh, We're all asking what's really important, what really matters in life. And as the excesses are stripped away for us, I would invite you to use this moment to remember the true story of the world. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are the central acts of God's saving work. So let's take this opportunity to remember, uh, to believe, and to celebrate Jesus' salvation as if our lives really depend upon this. Because indeed, they do. Indeed, they do. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, this morning, that it may nourish us in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, the one who offered himself up for us. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm sure I um, 
disappointed some of you that I can't memorize 50 verses the way that Jared Ayers did last Sunday if you were with us on the live stream. I'm going to work to that. Jared, that's a goal that I'll try to maybe get to someday, um, but couldn't quite get there this week. This morning we are seeing in Mark 15, Jesus is the crucified one. Jesus is the crucified one. And three things we'll consider with the rest of our time today. Uh, what is crucifixion? Who is responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? And then what does Jesus' crucifixion accomplish? So what is it? Who's responsible? And what does it accomplish? So first, what is crucifixion? Um, something I really appreciate about Mark and Mark's gospel is that he does not use sensationalism or exploit the horror of crucifixion to emotionally manipulate his readers. Uh, you perhaps noticed this as I was reading it just a moment ago. There's really not in this text very much of a description of what Jesus' crucifixion entailed. And restraint in, in Mark's description here makes a lot of sense for his original audience. Uh, writing primarily to Christians in Rome in the mid-60s AD, little explanation was needed. Uh, Emperor Nero, who, who ruled Rome at the time, was a tyrant, a cruel tyrant, and he crucified many and so the original audience had almost no doubt witnessed crucifixion. Uh, some of them had perhaps even witnessed the Apostle Peter's, which took place in these days. But for us, 2,000 years removed, uh, we can be ignorant of what Jesus actually went through. And so still with, with zero desire for sensationalism or for emotional manipulation, uh, it's important for us to know what crucifixion is. Uh, if not, we will find ourselves, particularly this time of year, singing songs like the wonderful cross uh, or wearing crosses on our clothing or on our jewelry uh, without really getting it, without really getting it. We need to understand in order to fully appreciate the suffering and the shame that Jesus went through, that Jesus endured in order to take away the sin of the world. So crucifixion, what is it? Crucifixion was painful. It was painful. Uh, before crucifixion itself, there was almost always a severe beating or a flogging involved. Jesus, we read in Mark 14 and 15, was beaten by both uh, the Jewish court and the Roman soldiers. Uh, scourging, what Jesus experienced, scourging was um, being whipped multiple times, and the whip itself was embedded on the tail of it and the end of it uh, with bits of stone or shards of glass. And as a person was whipped, as they were scourged, uh, those, those stones, that glass would tenderize and would tear the flesh. It would, it would weaken the victim and thereby shorten their time on the cross itself. Uh, some people, some victims never actually made it to the cross. Some of them died from the beating, from the scourging uh, itself. And then, after a person would be forced to carry his own crossbeam, victims were fastened to pieces of wood. Uh, usually by nails um, through the wrists, just above the hands, and through the feet. The word, the English word, excruciating, meaning intense suffering, intense pain, uh, this word actually draws its origin from this form of death. It was so, it was so painful that, that new words have been invented to capture that kind of pain and suffering. Crucifixion was also prolonged. It was prolonged. Typically, it took many hours, if not multiple days, to die from crucifixion. 
Uh, We didn't get to finish out the entire chapter of Mark 15. If we did, you would have read how Pontius Pilate is surprised at how quickly Jesus has died. Uh, And that's because death on a cross was either caused by shock or by asphyxiation. On a cross, a victim hangs, his chest sags as his hands and his wrists are held in place. And you can breathe in in that position, but in order to breathe out, a victim would have to lift himself up, and you can imagine how painful that would be to to lift yourself up by by arms and, and legs that are fastened to the wood. You'd have to lift yourself up to breathe out. And eventually you would just get so exhausted, so weary from doing that over and over again that you would just give up and you would die from asphyxiation. But it would take a long time. Crucifixion was also humiliating and degrading. And Mark actually gets a little more, he captures a little bit more of that in his description. Um, Crucifixion was an intentionally public spectacle. Victims were almost always crucified naked. They were strung up helplessly for people, as we even read it happened to Jesus, to to pass by, to insult, to spit upon. Victims of crucifixion often defecated on themselves. Imagine being like that for hours, covered in your own blood, covered in your own filth, naked for everyone to see. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. It was considered too barbaric for a Roman citizen to endure. This, was, this penalty, this, this form of death, was reserved for slaves and conquered people. It was re- reserved for those who were guilty of rebellion and treason against Rome. And to a Jewish person, then, there would be the added shame upon Jesus that, that a person who died in this manner was considered cursed by God. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read that uh, it's, a man is cursed if he is hung upon a tree, if he dies hanging upon a tree. So all of this together... A theologian named F.F. Bruce summed it up this way. He said, There are forms of execution which are not reckoned to strip a person of every vestige of dignity. But crucifixion was designed to do just that. Crucifixion was designed to do just that. So that's what crucifixion is. That's what crucifixion is. And as he recounts Jesus' crucifixion, Mark here also points to the role of a number of different parties involved in this. And so second, let's consider who is responsible? Who is responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? In 1998, uh, a tennis star named Peter Corda tested positive for steroid use. Uh, When he was confronted about that, he didn't deny the presence of steroids in his system. Instead, he claimed that the steroids that were there came because he ate veal, He was a a veal eater, and so that's why the steroids were in his system. Now, theoretically, that's possible. Uh, If you test positive for steroids, that can be because you you eat veal, except experts estimated that in order to account for the steroid levels in his body, he would have had to eat 40 calves a day for 20 years. 40 calves a day for 20 years. Okay, that's an extreme example. It's a ridiculous one. But is this not the nature of the human heart. We are blame shifters. Our propensity, our MO, is to take credit for everything good that we can take credit for, but to avoid the responsibility for anything bad. And so as we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus, there is plenty of opportunity to indulge this propensity that we have to to shift the blame. 
So let's just indulge that. Let's do that for a moment. Uh, Who can we hold responsible for the death of Jesus? We have a lot of options in this text. For one, actually, if we head head back to Mark chapter 14, we can hold Judas responsible. As one of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 closest human beings to Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Judas was greedy. John's gospel actually tells us that he used to help himself to the money bag that the disciples kept. And Judas was a sellout. He was an opportunist. Recognizing the Jewish leader's desire to eliminate Jesus, he accepts 30 pieces of silver to betray him. Adding insult to injury, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, something as intimate as that. And that's just audacious and brazen to look Jesus in the eye and to kiss him and thereby in that act deliver him over to his trial and ultimately to his crucifixion. So who is responsible? Certainly Judas the betrayer. Also, the Jewish leaders. They figure prominently in this narrative of Mark 14 and 15. They have, we read throughout Mark's gospel, long been plotting to kill Jesus. They're the ones who pay Judas to betray him. They they hold in Mark 14 these sham proceedings to convict Jesus of blasphemy. They hear in Mark 15, they incite the crowd to put pressure on Pilate to crucify him. And when Pilate tries to wash his hands of the matter, the Jewish people in a really disturbing passage that we find in Matthew's gospel, they yell out to Pilate, his blood, Jesus' blood, be on us and on our children. They say, that's okay, Pilate, we won't hold you responsible. Jesus' blood is on our hands. Why such hatred? As Pilate rightly perceives here in verse 10, it's because of envy. It's because of envy. The Jewish leaders envy Jesus' power and his following. And they're angry at his rebukes, at his rejection of their tradition, at his criticisms of their failed leadership. They are ready to be rid of his troublesome presence by ending his life. Who is responsible Certainly the envious Jewish leaders. But let's not forget Pilate. Pilate, the the Roman governor, was in Jerusalem in these days to ensure order and peace during the celebration of Passover. The Jewish leaders might be the ones who want Jesus dead, but they're actually not able to do that without Pilate. Only Roman authorities could order an execution. Blasphemy is the the capital charge, the the death-deserving charge in the Jewish courts, but that actually makes no difference to Rome at all. If, however, Jesus is the king of the Jews, if he is a threat to to the lordship, to the rule of Caesar, now that makes him liable to the charge of sedition, to the charge of treason against Rome. So Pilate here conducts his own examination. He finds no basis to execute Jesus. But Pilate wants what is politically expedient, what will avoid unrest in Jerusalem. Ultimately, Pilate's a coward. Ultimately, he's a coward. He will do what is expedient instead of what is right. And after attempting to divert a couple ways, including releasing a murderer named Barabbas, he caves to the wishes of the crowd. The ruler becomes the ruled. And he delivers Jesus over to the will of the people, ultimately authorizing his own soldiers to use the worst means of execution that the Roman Empire could dream up. So who is responsible? Certainly 
Pilate the coward. You see, when it comes to the death of Jesus, we have plenty of opportunity to hold other people responsible. But here's what I want you to see this morning. In so doing, we will suppress the truth and we will sabotage the story of the world. The story that we and everyone else need most in our lives. Made in God's image, it is us who's rebelled against God. It is us who find ourselves in desperate need of his rescue. And so yes, Judas and the Jewish leaders and Pilate are responsible, but in a more fundamental way than that, I'm responsible and you are. I don't know where you have been uh, in your own heart and mind this past week. Uh, Personally, pandemics and orders to shelter in place, they put a giant spotlight on my sin, on the ways that I rebel against God and devote myself constantly to other lesser things that are no God. The, The busyness and the activity and the routines of normal life can actually kid me into thinking that I'm a lot more holy, that I'm a lot more put together, that I'm a lot more selfless than I actually am. Upend normalcy uh, and force me to slow down and immediately all kinds of anxiety and escapism and self-pity and greed and self-righteousness come out. My scramble to control things and my scramble for comfort and productivity, all these idols and these sin patterns immediately come to the forefront of my life. And we are only three weeks in. I mean, God help us. We're only three weeks into this. So you and I may not have been there 2,000 years ago, but the same sin that crucified Jesus is present in our own words and in our own actions and our thoughts and our motivations. When I'm greedy and when I'm selfish and opportunistic, when I choose money to devote myself to money over Jesus, I am Judas. When I'm envious or self-righteous, when I wish ill upon another person, I am the Jewish leaders. When I'm a people pleaser, when I succumb to the opinions of others, when I, in cowardice, choose escape over faithfulness, when I do what is expedient instead of what is right, I am Pilate. As a pastor and scholar named John Stott once said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we will ever understand the worth and our need for what Christ accomplished on the cross, we have to see that it was my sin, that it was our sin that required it in the first place. Who is responsible? We are. We are. Abby mentioned this a little while ago. We are nearing the end of the season of Lent. And Christians are people who constantly pursue repentance of the ways in which we reject God and rebel against him and his good design. But in particular, Lent is a time to remember our mortality. It's a time to remember that that death actually exists in the first place as a consequence of sin. And it's an opportunity for us to, in a unique way, in an intentional way, pursue repentance for the sin that remains in our lives. As a pandemic shakes up your life, as it strips you down to the essentials of your life, I invite you this morning, lean into that. 
Lean into that. As the disruption brings otherwise hidden patterns of sin to the surface of your life, identify that, acknowledge that, and pursue repentance. Maybe you aren't that selfless and holy. Maybe you've just been busy. Maybe you don't really love your neighbor or your roommate or your siblings or your spouse or your kids. Maybe you've just been disciplined enough to tolerate them for an hour or two, an hour or two a day. And now that you're forced to spend more than an hour or two a day with them, it's obvious that maybe there's not as much love there as you wish there was. Allow these circumstances to remind you of your own responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion. To do this with any kind of honesty will wreck us. Will wreck us. And it's actually meant to. It's meant to show us the offense not just of what Judas did and what the Jewish leaders did and what Pilate did. It's meant to show us the offense of our own sin against the holiness and the goodness of God. And if that was all there is to this story, the weight would crush us. We can't stand up underneath that. If that's all there is, and if we try to stand up underneath it, the only possible outcome is the outcome of Judas Iscariot himself. The guilt was so overwhelming, the despair so overbearing, that he saw no other outlet but to take his own life. But thanks be to God, that is not all there is to this story. Instead, the beautiful, scandalous mystery of God's work is that what you and I brought about by our own sin, by our own evil, God simultaneously brought about by his love. Who is responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? Jesus himself and God the Father. Never forget that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. And he goes according to the will and the purposes of God the Father. Mark 15 is full of fulfillments and prophecies from centuries earlier. If you ever get to read a study Bible and read through Mark 15, all the little notes that reference other passages of Scripture, you will find fulfillments of prophecies from Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. Even this darkness that's cast over the land as Jesus hangs upon the cross Darkness was the last plague in Egypt before the angel of death came. So think about this. After the darkness in Egypt, salvation from God's judgment comes only by the shed blood of a lamb painted over your doorpost. And so here in Mark 15, in the darkness, Jesus, the Lamb of God, hangs upon the cross. His blood is painted upon the wood of the cross. And he is in that moment fulfilling the greater exodus, the greater freedom, not out of Egypt this time, but out of sin and out of death itself. So you and I are certainly responsible for Jesus' death, but at an even deeper level than that, this has always been the plan and the work of God. He sent Jesus into the world. Jesus offered himself so that we might experience grace and mercy instead of judgment. He did that so that sin and death might lose their power. And a 19th century theologian named Octavius Winslow, I think, summed this up better than than I've read anywhere else. Octavius Winslow said this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The Father for love.
the cross exposes us completely. It says all of us, our condition left to ourselves requires this. And so it makes no sense for us to minimize our sin, for us to to shift the blame. It's like saying, I wasn't doping, it was the veal. We need not, friends, we need not pretend that we are put together decent moral people because we are not. We are not. And all the proof that we could ever need came on a Friday 2,000 years ago. At the very same time, Nothing demonstrates the depth of God's love for us like this exact moment. As deep as our sin runs, as terrible as it is, it is at that very place that the love and the grace and the mercy of God break through to rescue us. The cross is at the center of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it tells us, as others have put it far better than I could, that we are more sinful than we can possibly imagine, but that we are more loved than we ever dare dream. We're more sinful than we could possibly imagine, but we are more loved than we ever dare dream. So third and finally, what does Jesus' crucifixion accomplish? What does it accomplish? Next week, we will celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And the great work of God's salvation always holds these two things together, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's all connected. Uh, Jesus' incarnation, his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of it together is required to accomplish salvation. But as Mark recounts here in his gospel, when Jesus is crucified, when Jesus dies, and actually before the resurrection, two things happen immediately. The curtain is torn and a centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So in the temple in Jerusalem, a heavy and thick curtain separated the holy place inside the temple from the most holy place, from the holy of holies. That curtain kept the people separate from the presence of God. And only once a year, Only the holiest person, the high priest, among the holiest people, the Israelites, could enter into that most holy place and make atonement for the sins of the people. But when Jesus dies, this curtain is removed. And it's not pulled down by the people. It's not lit on fire. Just so that we would be sure that we knew who actually did it. It is torn in two from top to bottom. It is torn in two by God himself. Through Jesus' death, through his once and for all sacrifice of himself, we now have access to the presence of God. This is, in other words, the day of atonement. The day of atonement. Sin has been dealt with in the death of Jesus. Because Jesus offered himself in spite of our sinfulness, we can now enter God's presence. We can now enter into the kingdom of God. And incredibly, the first person who goes in is a Roman centurion. Truly this man was the Son of God. Verse 39. This is the clearest proclamation of the identity of Jesus in the entire Gospel of Mark. It bookends the opening line. Mark 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And not until this moment in Mark 15 does another human being recognize and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, who knows how much this Roman centurion, this man, understood of all the implications of that in this moment. But there is sincerity in his confession. And think about this. It wasn't a feat of strength or the working of some miraculous act that convinced him. It was, verse 39, seeing the way that Jesus died. Seeing the way he died. And remember, this is a centurion. This is a battle-hardened soldier. He had seen many people die, no doubt some by his own hand. And yet, the death of Jesus was unique. It was unique. And seeing it, just gazing upon it, utterly transformed him in a moment. We are not given the specifics of what it was that convinced the centurion? Was it that Jesus was refusing to save himself? Was it that for all the mocking he received from everyone involved, Jesus refused to revile in return? Was it the obvious intimacy that Jesus shared with God the Father crying out, my God, my God? Or was it the obvious spiritual and emotional turmoil that Jesus went through when he was forsaken by God? Was it the humble triumph of his last words? It is finished. We don't know the specifics. We're not given them. But this man saw the way Jesus breathed his last. And when he saw it, the hardness of his heart melted and he could not but help proclaim, truly this was the Son of God. He looked on Jesus and he lived. Men and women, will you look on Jesus and live? Will you, as we read from Hebrews 12 today, will you fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who endured the cross, despising the shame, who now lives and reigns with God forever? Some of you hearing this are Christians. And if that's you, as you recognize your complicity, your responsibility in his death, Look on Jesus and live. Look on Jesus and live. His cross exposes you. It exposes us all. It renders us incapable of continuing to pretend that we are decent, put-together people. But as it exposes, thanks be to God, it saves. It is the love and the grace and the mercy of God dealing with our sin once and for all that held Jesus there. It's why he could not save himself, why he would save us through this act. So don't hide or minimize or pretend. Look on Jesus and live. Perhaps some of you hearing this this morning are not Christians and you clicked on a random link that you saw on social media. You're exploring Christianity. You're wrestling with some doubts. You are always welcome to do that here with us at Liberty Church. Normally, I'd offer to get together with you in person as soon as we could. Since we can't do that right now, uh, reach out to us through our website, through social media. Reach out to us. We'll find a way to connect with you, even if it can't be face-to-face for the time being. We'd love to connect with you and talk with you about that. If that's you this morning, consider this centurion. Consider this centurion. If you were going to dream up the first person to enter the kingdom of God, it would never be this guy. 
would never be this guy. It's hard to imagine a less likely candidate. He's not the right people group. He's not a Jewish man. He's a Gentile. He's a battle-hardened, death-experienced Roman who valued power and strength and pride above all else. But as he observes the death of Jesus, the antithesis of all those things he values, the weakness and the shame of a crucified man, the hardness of his heart melts and he believes. And in a moment, a man who once couldn't even get close to the presence of God walks across the threshold where the curtain once separated. He enters the kingdom of God. And if he can then so can you. If God can use the death of Jesus to transform him, he can do the very same thing in you regardless of what your life looks like right now. Will you look on Jesus and live? Today, in the crucifixion of Jesus, may all of us see the story of the world and the story of our own lives. Understanding the horror that it is, owning our responsibility, and at the very same time, embracing that it was the love and the grace and the mercy of God that had orchestrated this moment from eternity past. May you look on Jesus and live. Amen. Pray for us. God of all times and God of all places, in Jesus Christ, lifted up on the cross, you open for us the path to eternal life. Grant that we may enter in, that we may look upon Jesus and live. Grant that we may serve you in our joy, in our gratitude for what you have done, in the newness of life. Grant that we may faithfully follow you, Jesus, and walk in your ways. And we pray this, Jesus, through you, who now lives and reigns with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.